This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Aston Villa Youth Development Phase coach, Sam Hudson. He discusses his work with the coach's voice and the benefits of the platform which he has been with shortly after its inception, use of video analysis and how he uses this to support players, specifically in a tactical sense, during games with consequences, as well as his recent book, Football in a Pandemic, where he discusses some common themes from top flight games. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Listen, Sam, appreciate you jumping on. Um, Obviously, I know we've I don't know if you can play against one another, coach against one another with, with our time kind of in academy football. Um, and looking again at your profile, social media, there's those are really interesting bits, I think, for us to cover. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate you giving up the time and, and jumping on the call. No worries, mate. Thanks for the invite. Um, so for people that maybe haven't come across you um, and maybe don't know your story, just want to give, I guess, a quick overview of the start of your coaching journey up until where you are now and any any key summaries along the way sure so um i guess like a lot of coaches um initially they wanted to to, to play the game um the you know you love the game you fall in love with it from an early age and i was no different um but i, I knew early on that, that playing wise it, it wouldn't kind of aspire and it wouldn't happen to certainly to the levels that you kind of dream at and making professional so I turned to coaching quite early and decided that a career in kind of sports coaching and, and ideally football was, was probably the one for me. Um, and I decided to, to, to go the university route after, after leaving school. Um, I, I did my early kind of coaching badges, like your level ones, level twos. Um, I think I did my level one when I was about 16, I think. Um, and as a real insight and a, a first step into coaching. And from there, you kind of catch the bug and you can never get rid of it. Um, so I went down the university route, spent three years in, in South Wales. Um, I did a, a foundation degree uh, for two years in football coaching and performance. Then I did a, a top up Bachelor of Science. So it was a, the more generic sports coaching and performance. Um, alongside that, in my second year, I managed to pass my B license. So I took that with the Welsh FA. Um, so I was quite fortunate in terms of qualification wise to leave university with the UEFA B and two degrees which gave me quite a good, um, certainly on paper anyway, a good grounding into building a career in, in sport and, and ideally football coaching. Um, I did uh, an initial analysis placement with Cardiff City whilst I was at university. So a lot of the time filming games, coding, doing all the clips and tagging and stuff. Um, and I found that, you know, a, another good experience to, to get an insight into how academies and how clubs work and how different staff works and how different ages work. And then I managed to to source coaching as well in that and, and working with all different players in the academy. And again, as a real insight and taster into what it takes to work at academy level. And around that time, the EPPP, I think, had just been introduced. I think it was just as I was finishing university. So it was interesting to see how clubs were preparing for that more formalised environment of the EPPP and what it would look like moving forward with the category systems and and all the different requirements from particularly from nine to, to 16 in the school board program. And I kind of just caught the first wave of that 
um, whilst I was at university. I did, uh, like a lot of people, I went out to the States in each in each of the, the three kind of summers during, during my university years, I went out and did the whole camp experience. It was initially with Disney uh, in Florida and and that was that was a real it was just fun it was it was so enjoyable um it it was normally the first kind of three or four weeks were based in florida and disney running their their soccer academy program which i think it had just been set up the year prior so i think year two was my first year and then i did it for, for the three years following um and it was great you were doing like sessions all day with all sorts of different players. Some some teams would come in from different parts of the states as actual team coaching. Others would be individuals. Others would be simply they're on holiday in, in Disney, and mum and dad want to have a break from the kids, so they're going to drop them off at the, at the at the soccer camp for four days and get rid of them. Um, so you had a real mixed bag. But in terms of like facilities, it was amazing. It was at the um, I don't know if you've ever been to Disney, but all, all the parks that they have, it's it's basically a, a sports park. It's like ESPN's Wild World of Sport, I think it's called something like that. And they have like pictures. You just just pictures galore: baseball, football, NFL. It's just like pristine. Everything's perfect. Every blade of grass. It's like thirty degrees every day. It's like absolute utopia. Um, and somehow managed to land 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 a, a role there in the summer. And once we'd completed that kind of academy in Florida for, for the month, we'd then go off touring the states and um, almost like spreading the word of what, what what the academy had. And we'd go to different high schools, we'd go to different clubs, we'd go all sorts. I went to about eight or nine different states, I think, in the first year. And then year two and year three, we went back to some similar environments. But then after that, it was, again, new states and 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 doing a bit of touring and traveling so you're getting to see part of the country but ultimately the, the main goal for me was to go out and coach and delivering kind of three sessions a day for eight or nine weeks at a time you you learn so much in that time you might have like an under eight session in in the morning like nine till 11 then you might have a an under 12 girls team that are only just started and then in the evening it was like an under 17 boys that compete in a decent level so I was thrown into so many different environments all, all kind of in the same location so you're putting different hats on and, and taking different hats off and you're changing your language you you sit session design your your topics you, whatever you, you're doing on the pitch you, you're totally adapting and for to do that for eight or nine weeks I think possibly is one of the best introductions to being a coach I think I could have ever asked for um purely because it was so full-on but it was so you know so varied and the amount of mistakes I will have made I'd love to see back my sessions now from like today I would have loved to see what they look like because you'd probably be like you know gritting your teeth like oh my god what am I doing there but it's like anything the more you do it the, the more experience you get the more mistakes you make and, and that was a real good opportunity for me that in my head, I could leave university going, right, I've done a few years kind of delivering hundreds of sessions in different environments with different players. I've got different qualifications. I've got university degrees. I've got a B licence. I've got, I started doing some of like the talent ideal, the psychology stuff from the FA, different kind of courses and the futsal stuff just to, to be a bit more well-rounded. I've done experience with doing analysis. So I think I had quite a good foundation to, to build a career from from those three or four years um, at university, 
ultimately because I loved America so much um, at the time, I decided to stay out there. And I lived in, in New York and New Jersey for a couple of years, working kind of travel EDP um, teams, taking again, taking loads of different teams. I think I was like head coach of three or four teams and assistant of one more, all different age groups. It's like a 12s, a 14s, a 16s and a 17s. So it's, again, doing two, two or three sessions a day, so many different players, so many different qualities and levels. And over there, again, those few years, you... You make so many mistakes, but you learn so quickly because you're doing multiple sessions. It's it's in, it's always on your mind and trying. And it, it also gives you an opportunity to try new things that you saw on Twitter or you listen to a podcast. You thought, oh, I'd love to try that. Or instead of only coaching once or twice a week because you're coaching daily and, like I say, two or three sessions a day, you've got that time to make mistakes or try something or steal an idea from someone else because, like many people say, the best coaches are the best thieves. And... You know, you can you can steal so much from other people, and because I'm coaching so much, you're obviously coaching next to other people on the same pitch, and you might look across and see that they're doing anything. Actually, I might try that, or I like the way they set up the cones, or I like the way they you know put the drinks at the side, or anything little like that. You can nick and put it into your own practice. So for those first few years, kind of post university, again, I'm just conscious that I wanted to do session, 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 and keep building that experience, keep learning how to coach as much as the what to coach um, because you can have obviously all the technical and tactical knowledge all the psych stuff or the soap stuff but if you if you aren't as strong actually delivering it you, your coaching's not going to be as good as it's simple as that you've got to kind of have both the, the what and the and the how to, to deliver it so I was very conscious of of that post-university as well um, then decided to come back to the UK um, and this is where kind of my club and academy journey has has, has gone through. So I've worked at at three professional clubs, um, Cat Three and then Cat Ones. So I've seen different kind of levels in the Triple P. I've also done stuff in schools, in development centres, like um, PPE stuff, alongside academy coaching. And then currently, um, I work at Aston Villa in their academy, their YDP phase, and for the last three and a half, nearly come to four years, just after Christmas. Um, I've worked for the Coaches Voice, who are a coach education company based in the UK. Um, and I joined with them not far after launch. They launched in January 2018 and I came on board February, March. So it was very much in the, in the early days after launch and I've been with them ever since. And I contribute to, to loads of different things over this, this, this kind of three or four years. I do a lot of the tactical stuff or a lot of the stuff on the website done bits of the coach education stuff and it's great to see how it's expanding and evolving into different areas. We've had a, a live event, the first one. The first one was postponed by COVID and it was great to finally get that launched. Um, and it's great to see how our content's building there. Um, and I guess that one of the main reasons why I came back to the UK um, at the end of 2015, 16, I think it was 20, yeah, 2015 Christmas was to to then go back onto my journey in terms of qualifications and, and look towards the, the A license, which I mean, I was very fortunate to get on. Um, certainly first time of applying because I was speak to a lot of the people and they've said they've applied for, I don't know, five or six years and they've not managed to get on it. Um, and I was a little bit tactical with my application because obviously the only, there's only two or three that run a year. Um, and you can only, at the time when I did it, you can only apply for one of the two or three. So I thought oh, I'll apply for the last one. I think a lot of people are quite so keen to get on it. They just, and the one I applied for was like 
14 months in advance so you wouldn't even be on it for over a year so I thought oh, I'll throw one in get my references see what happens and you know I was like I say, I'm still to this day a little bit surprised but um you know you, you you make it work and and had a great experience on that and then just as Covid hit I was just coming to the end of that I was thinking oh you know I'd love wanted to get it signed off and then Covid comes in and no one's coaching everyone's on furlough um but it gave me a great chance to kind of reflect on that and think, you know, actually, you know, it's it, that process of your courses and your badges and your learning. It's, it's, it's almost a good thing because it can make you think twice and it gives you more time to actually reflect on what you've learned, what you do really well, because it's dead easy as a coach. Um, we spoke about this at work fairly recently that it's, it's dead easy to, to think about what's not good or things to improve and things to get better at, whether that's you yourself coaching or the environment or individual players. It's very easy to get into that mindset of, well, this is what we're not good at. Let's focus on this. But actually, what's your strengths? What are you good at? Um, and I thought the A-license did that quite quite well as well in terms of, like, this is the your kind of areas to improve, but ultimately, this is why you've got here. Um, and I really enjoyed that process. And um, as I say, so I'm still at the coach's voice and then... Um, been at Aston Villa for, for this season, working in the YDP and um, lo- loving the, the journey of a uh, football coach in, in England. Perfect. So I think, yeah, there's loads of really good bits in there and uh, loads of themes that we, we can pick up on. So I think the first one, let, let's start with um, the coach's voice. Obviously, it's becoming a really, really prominent um, part of, I guess, coaching culture in this country I'd say um, and I, I, and this is just my personal opinion I think it's probably taken over as the you know most prominent um, voice if you like in the space and it allows you know allows people from different backgrounds different experiences different levels to get really interesting content um, so what was the initial thought of launch? Obviously, you were there just after it, but what was their initial idea when they when they did launch it? And then for you, when you first started on that journey, what drew you towards being being part of that um, product? Yeah, I guess um, in terms of launch, whenever we was kind of chatting, because um, they're based in London and I'm in Nottingham, um, a lot of the time, even kind of pre-COVID, a lot of it has been like virtual stuff with me kind of not being down in London as, as much. So kind of like working from home stuff. I'm almost used to bits of that anyway. Um, and everyone was, it was interesting at the start of COVID. I was like, Oh my God, it's working from home. And I'm like, well, I've, I've done it anyway quite a lot. Um, but kind of when we have our chats and stuff and, and, and when I first spoke with them, it was, it's almost a clue in the name. It's to give the coaches their real voice because I think. What what the um what they spotted early on was uh, when coaches and managers kind of tend to get interviewed in, in the UK, even today some of the questions that you kind of hear like post match or pre match that they're, they're not particularly insightful or it doesn't often allow for r- real insight and real detail and um I, I guess stuff that whether it's a fan, whether it's a journalist, whether it's a coach, whether it's an analyst, whether it's whoever, whatever level or stage you're at in, in, in kind of where football is in your life, that that little bit of detail can go quite a long way and, and it can give kind of any insight you can, you can give. Obviously, generally with football clubs, some, some information is kind of sensitive and you're not going to release all your secrets, particularly at the top end when they're competing against everybody else. But 
Um, you see quite a few managers that have been abroad and worked at different different levels and clubs in in mainland Europe that they tend to say some of the questions from the media, say in Italy, for example, is a lot more tactical or technical than some you get in the UK. And I think kind of that's where the, the idea was based from initially that can we do something that's giving the coaches a voice, but then also market it to then turn it into coach education as well, because there's two strands, there's the website and then there's the subscription service, which are, you know, I'm going to sound biased, but they're both good, great detail and great insight, but ultimately the different kind of audiences and, and targets. Um, and I think it just stems from that, creating that level of detail and insight that maybe people almost didn't realise that they needed or, or were missing. Um, you take Twitter, for example, now, you look at some of the content that people post on Twitter, even for free, some of the level of detail and insight is absolutely outstanding. Um, I mean, you know, everyone uses social media. Most people use it for different reasons. Me personally, Twitter's the only really one I have. I don't kind of have Snapchat or Instagram or anything like that because I only use Twitter for learning and getting detail and insight. And that's sent to my Twitter profile, especially just a football feed um, of all different different things. And I think kind of the market for better insight is is emerging in the UK. And I think that's probably what stemmed for the reason for Coaches was being launched. Um, and that kind of drew me to it as well, because it's like, like most things in football, some of your roles and, and jobs and stuff, half of them kind of come up informally. And it's not always like a, you know, a kind of any other walk of life where jobs get advertised you go through the interview process and, and that kind of stuff I've had that in football where I see a job and I don't kind of know many people in that club or that environment and you go through the interview process or it might be you know somebody and, and you get in, in in that way as and you know you'll know that in football that it's a very small circle and sometimes you can know someone that can lead to opportunities um but that's what drew me to the coach's voice when just as I saw the launch, I was like, this is an amazing product. This could be huge and, and the potential for it. And it was um, simply, you know, kind of getting in touch informally. And, and we had quite a few chats and spoke about where they want to go and what I could offer. Did a few kind of months um, just to see the season out and see how it would look. And then it's just taken off from there. Um, and since then, the team's kind of slowly, slowly growing into different areas and, Conscious of not growing too big, but at the same time, still delivering the quality. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I fell into that one. Yeah, in terms of um, any content that's particularly stood out to you, is, uh, are the ones I quite enjoy, and again, you do see those on Twitter quite a lot, is those masterclass sessions mm -hmm. where they have a coach come on and talks about a particular yeah. challenge they had or a particular game and talks through what they were thinking at that time. Um, is there any one of those that particularly stood out to you as interesting or a level of detail that you weren't expecting or yeah just one that really stood out to you uh, I think kind of way back when at the start the, the Brendan Rodgers one was really insightful the Liverpool five, I think it was 5-1 or 5-0 against Arsenal um, that, was, that was really good in terms of how he used, I think it was like the storage Suarez, Sterling kind of era. And it, I'm sure it was around like storage, playing him a bit offset and trying to target. And then they were trying to target Ozil on the transition and, and just the kind of the detail of, um, 
specific strengths and weaknesses of your players and, and the opposition and creating a game plan around that. That was that was a, a really standout one. Um, I, I really like as well. I, I mean, I like so many of them because again, it's just detail. Anytime there's detail, I'm absolutely all over it. You just get drawn in, and, and like I say, you can steal so much. But I, I like the philosophical ones as well around kind of generic ideas and principles. So the the Chavi one that's just we've just been released um, in the last few weeks, talking about his time at Al Sadd and. And just his, his, his principles, it makes it sound so easy in terms of kind of how he creates whip, how he creates central overloads, how he creates his superiorities, how he likes to to build against the blocks. And it's not kind of, I'm going to say it's not detailed because the details in what he's showing and, and it's and it's really insightful, but it's more like the principles of, and it can be more generic. So in, in, in as opposed to like the Brendan Rodgers one, which I felt was a lot more detail on, like one or two players and that part of the game plan. Um, and he's zoomed in. Like It's almost like using the microscope, zooming in on, on those one or two aspects that ultimately won in the game, those finer margins. And then some of the ones like Chavi's ones where it was, you know, all his philosophy and it's kind of the whole overview and kind of the differences between the two, um, which again, sound biased, but I think that's why the content is so good because you can, they all kind of provide different returns or some might be the detail and the, and, little movements or or positioning or um like I said with the Brendan Rogers one it was the use of individual specific plays in specific parts of the pitch coupled with the opposition's players on specific lanes and specific part of the pitch. Whereas like I said the Chavi one might be a bit more principle based, but you can still take loads from it because ultimately you need principles, you need ideas and structure and philosophy to guide you. Otherwise, you know, you're kind of winging it if you don't have a, a structure and an idea. Um and then at the same time, it's great to have your structures and your ideas and your overarching principles. But then again, your details is at that level is what win, wins you the games. So the differences between the two, um, I'd probably say those two are my, are my favourites. And it's quite timely that obviously the, the, the Chavi one has just been released. Um, it's, it, if I watched it about six, seven times, I think already it's, um, every time you watch it, you can nick something else. That was going to be my next question. So is there anything that um, you've seen from a clip or what someone's presented and it's really challenged you in terms of your football experience or your football philosophy or principles and you've gone, actually, that's a really different way of looking at solving that problem or that's a really different way of setting up and that might be better than what, what I was doing previously? Um. Yeah, all the, all the time. I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, you, you can never kind of stop and settle. You always have to check and challenge what you're doing, why you do it. Um, I think the game, I mean, I'm only 28. So my, um, my kind of understanding of the game in terms of the history of football is quite small because I only started watching kind of, I think I got my first season ticket when I was about five or six. So that would have been like late nineties. So in terms of kind of like how football's evolved from early 2000s to now, I kind of think it's evolved loads, particularly in, in England. Um, and when I speak to coaches with, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, years of experience compared to me, they, they say, yeah, when it went from the 70s or 80s, 90s, all these decades of change, it's evolved so much. And, and, I, and I do think even in my limited time working in the game that you can see so many so much evolving in 
even kind of since like 2010, 2011, that the World Cup around then when a lot of teams are using double pivots and they're like four two three one, compared to like now, you look at some of the things that are going on um, in different leagues in the world, you look at some of the teams that are so expansive and so expressive, you look at teams like Atlanta who are, you know, runners everywhere and different movements and so much rotations. You look at obviously what Pep's done, you know, bringing the fullbacks inside. You look at how Klopp's counter presses evolved the game. You look at people like Sarri who do third man runs. You look at Conte who's um, unbelievably organising in his three four three three five two and his kind of play around the corner and his runs off the ball. Um, there's so many different kind of styles and ideas that are ultimately all being successful. Um, and given kind of what I do a lot of the days, ultimately watching a lot of football and studying it and creating content around that side of the game, you see and learn so much. Um, I mean, something that stands out recently with the with the rule change for the goal kicks a few years ago, it, it almost never occurred to me that kind of once you could receive it in the penalty area, it never even kind of crossed my mind that well, what's the advantages of, you know, maybe the centre-half taking the goal kick like on the corner of the six-yard box instead of the goalie putting it down and playing it. Um, because that first pass, with the new rule, that first pass is always going to be free if you're playing it kind of short and around the six-yard box because they're never going to be able to jump that 18 yards. They're never going to be able to get there. So you almost that first pass is almost um, not a waste, but it's it's a given that you're going to keep it. So if you go from your goalie to your centre-half, or you can be sent off to your goalie, you know, it can look quite different in terms of how they press you and which players are left free. Um, and I think that was, I think the first time I saw that was in Italy somewhere. I can't remember the team. I think it might have been Lazio. I can't remember the team. I'm sure it was Lazio. But it was just interesting to go, actually, yeah, what happens if the centre-half takes the ball right in the corner of the six-yard box instead of slap playing in the middle and he plays it to the keeper and then we're open play, we're live, and then the centre-half can move and adapt to how do the teams press, particularly if they jump to you, as opposed to goalie giving it to the centre-back, then we're under pressure. Realistically, then the centre-back's playing it to your goalkeeper and although goalkeepers are getting better every year with their feet, generally your centre-backs are better than the goalkeepers. So in, in terms of that um, that dynamic, um, that was something that, that always stood out. And I, again, I, I'm sure I just saw a clip on that on Twitter. Somebody kind of posted a, uh, like an eight-second clip of I'm sure again, I'm sure it's Lazio, that goal kick, this is different, this is new. And and you go from there. Um, and again, I think that's why social media, particularly Twitter, is so great for any any up-and-coming coach, any kind of mid-level coach, any top coach, whatever level you are. If you follow you know, so many different people that, that post stuff for free, it's an invaluable resource. Um, and I myself have tried to do more, certainly kind of as lockdown started then since then to now, I try and post a lot more stuff than I ever have done just to almost feel like you can give back a little bit because I'm so greedy and stealing everyone else's ideas that, you know what, let's let's check and challenge yourself and, and put some more stuff out there. And again, that's part of the uh, reason as well why why I ended up in, working on the book project and, and releasing that out to, to again, kind of provide other ideas and, and from what I've seen. But again, get it checked and challenged. And if people read it and think, oh, I disagree with that or what do you mean by that or whatever, then, you know, that two-way dialogue in the end makes makes you better. Yeah, and we've had um, Josh Bednash and Eric Laurie on here previously who have talked through their process. And I think obviously they do a similar role to you in terms of that tactical analyst mm -hmm. work. So 
in terms of a process for you, what does that look like? Do you go into a game or an area going, I'm going to look specifically at this area of the game? Or do you look at it and you go and watch a team, for example, and if you're looking at Conte under Spurs and go, okay, what are some of the key themes that are going to come out from Conte that we that I then might be able to drag up clips from or whatnot? Yeah, I guess... Um... A difficult question in terms of I don't think I have like a a black and white process in terms of this is what I do. Um, I guess it depends on kind of what the goal of the analysis is. So sometimes it will be me kind of casually watching a game because I enjoy it, or I'm watching a game for something, and then I see something in the game that I think, oh, I've got to clip that. It might be a run, it might be a body shape, it might be like a whole team press, it might be one. I, I like the, the the individual clips where it's like a, like I say, five to eight second clip of one player doing something that I think, oh, I love that. I like the detail behind that or I like the reasoning behind that or it's a bit new or it's just something done that a lot of players do in games but they've done it really well. So sometimes it can it can be almost like a, not a eureka moment, but like a, a I've just spotted that then and there off the cup, I didn't plan for that. It's just something I've seen. And quite a lot of the time, because you know, most of us have a phone within a foot away from us 24 7. I'll just go in my notes and it'll be. Um, so, one that kind of blew up on my Twitter, which I kind of didn't even think about, was uh, Sadio Mane did a little bit of movement. I think it was one where he might have done like a triple movement or something from across. He's just brought his defender in, gone another way, and then gone again. And it's just a few steps. And the balls come across, and I don't think he, I think he actually missed the chance. Um, and I was watching the game live, and I just saw his movement, and then I saw the replay, and I thought, oh, I'm going to clip that. I'm going to go next time I end up on Y Scout, I'll clip that. Um, and, and initially, I'll kind of have it for myself because I think players nowadays that are so used to having technology around them in their lives, like most players when they come into academies, half of them now have iPhones and most of them have phones gem- generally, even in like the foundation phase players, a lot of them will have phones. A lot of them in schools have the smart boards, they'll have iPads at home, they have laptops, they get iPads at school. Like technology is everywhere for, for this generation of players. So as a way to tap into that, it might be um a, a, like I say, an eight second clip that I've seen and the next time I see a player before training or after training, it might be, oh, did you see the game or look at this movement or tell me what you think about this or um, watch this movement because I want you to do it tonight in training or um, there's so many ways you can layer it. So I I use it to kind of improve players as much as myself and some of it might be off the cuff. Um, If, for example, I know that I want to... um, So again, part of the book process was I wanted to look at loads of different teams and and what they do across the season and and do well if there's anything that stood out. And I tried to pitch it as not necessarily just picking the top kind of six teams. Um, I wanted to pick teams all kind of throughout the league um, and, and what they were doing well. And straight away early on in the season, I noticed that West Ham were counter-attacking quite well after about week four or five. So I thought, oh, let's really delve into that and, and really just watch the counter-attack. So the great thing about things like Scout and Instat and these all these um, football providers online that 
a lot of it is done for you in terms of the coding that if you just wanted to watch a team's counter-attacks, you can do that. If you wanted to watch a team's goal kicks, you can do that. You can, you know, you can go into the detail or you can watch the full game. So it's, so sometimes it might be, oh, actually, I'm just going to watch a specific team and I might watch their playing out from the back clips or I might watch their set pieces or I might watch something specific from that. Or again, that coach, if I think, oh, like you said, Antonio Conte, I might watch, um, you know, like how we how he plays with, with two tens behind a nine, how is or, or he plays with a ten behind two nines, like the inter, how how is like front three tight front three work. So I might look at something specific and kind of try and find clips around that. Or again it might just be a more generic watch the game, pause, rewind, pause, rewind, pause, rewind all the time and and, and see the bigger picture. Um so, so I, I don't really think I have a like a black set black and white process, but it, it kind of depends on what the what the outcome is, and sometimes it might be pre-planned. Like I say, it might be that I'm looking specifically for playing out from the back stuff. I'm looking because I want to know more about a team or 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 how a coach works, or or want to improve my knowledge around playing out from the back or counter pressing or whatever. Or it could be something like off the cuff that I've just seen watching match of the day, or I've seen you know. The, like I say, when I watch games, like in an evening, just casually, oh, I'm, I want to clip that or I could use that for something. Um, and it's amazing how um, so many people can spot different things as well in the game that I will have missed. And that's the great thing about football is obviously there's 22 players running around and you'll, you'll miss things and, and other people will see stuff that you don't. And you can think, oh, yeah, why have I missed that? But now I've seen it and understood it. Hopefully I can see it the next time. Yeah, and you answered one of my questions there in terms of how do you engage the players with it, but it sounds like for you a big one is, you know, getting those clips and having interactions as you're walking down the hallway and going, listen, I saw this last mm-hmm. night from Salah or this last night from um, yeah. Romero or whatever and, and trying to get them to engage with it. I guess m- my next question is for you as an individual, how do you take those bits um, that you maybe see on a more team scale environment and how does that affect your coaching? Because I'd imagine, for example, a four-three-three of Man City may look very different as a four-three-three of Liverpool or Tottenham last year, very different to a four-three-three with Mourinho. So, how do you go around deciphering? I guess what bits of information are useful, and then maybe what bits of information don't apply to your philosophy. What? How does that sieving out of information work for you? Yeah, I guess. Um... For me, the one of the great things about football is there's no right and wrong, is there? There's no like definitive. Um, so you can kind of take. I've always kind of had in my head as a philosophy: if you could kind of like pass the ball like the Spanish, you can defend like the Italians, if you can counterattack like the Germans, if you've got like the flair of the French, and you've got like the fighting spirit and the energy of the English, you've got like such a such a mix there, and it, it, you try and take bits from different different people. But ultimately, um, that's someone like, like Sean Dyche at Burnley, who's done an unbelievable job for so long. And he plays 4 4 2, you know, defend quite deep a lot of the time, they lots of low blocks, they're quite direct, they'll hit the nines quite early. And, and, you know, a lot of people kind of don't respond to that. And that kind of style for me as a coach, I probably wouldn't work to that style. But ultimately, it's not wrong and I'm not right. Um, there are times in the game where you, you play long passes. Simple as that. That's, that's the sport of football. So, kind of, I think the key for me is trying to take as much as you can from different environments, different teams, and different ideas, um, to to create a better end product. Because no 
formation, no style, no ideal is un- is unbeatable. Like Pep's teams will lose, they lose obviously not very many, but they, they'll lose games. You know, they, like they, they lost the Champions League final last year, didn't they? Um, teams lose games. That's that's football. Kind of every formation can beat every formation. The different kind of structures and ideas can have the strengths and weaknesses that are, might be a stronger strength or or a weaker weakness in in certain areas. But ultimately, anything can be anything, and. I think the the key for me is trying to take lots of different ideas, particularly the teams that are successful, and, and judging what is success as well. For so, like I said, Burnley, for example, success for them has been kind of the last five or six years, not just staying in the Premier League, but they had a few seasons where they're finishing top 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 ten, kind of pushing eight from pushing Europe. Um, so they're doing stuff that is working for them. So you have to kind of acknowledge that and appreciate that, and go well. You've got to take some of the stuff that they do well out of that because it will it will make your philosophy better um, and, and obviously the danger is kind of totally copying one coach or totally copying one idea means you'll always be behind because you're always waiting for that person to change and adapt and evolve themselves and you'll always be kind of second place because you, you're you constantly copying what, what other people are doing and, and not to, to stop people copying or because as I've said a few times already the best coaches are the best thieves and they'll take things from other people but there's always an element of well, what do you believe, and when it comes down to it, what is your what is your idea? Um, and and I think having that balance of at some point you've got to go out on your own and really back yourself in what you believe in. Um, but ultimately, you can never kind of discount anyone's ideas and and philosophies. It's certainly, like playing styles, because certainly at the top level, it's, it's about winning. It's about three points, and if you if you don't win, as as we've seen this season already, we're only what ten, eleven games in, and I think five managers have gone already, four or five. So if you're not winning, um, it doesn't matter what your style is and when how you play and what your philosophy is. Ultimately, you're not winning. Um, I think more of a youth development perspective. Again, kind of like the tactical ideas can give you give you different returns. So. If you say you want to dominate the ball and you want to have high possession and you, you want to play through the thirds and play out from the back, well, your returns there for your players, for youth players, are a lot more passes, a lot more shorter passes generally, possibly use of both feet more, um, you know, more players having in-possession movements and in-possession qualities from like your physical corner, in-possession communication and, and, and commitment and kind of psychological side of things. Or if you're saying we want a high press, okay, then we'll, the returns there that you're going to get from your players, you're going to need very athletic players that can sprint, that can excel, decel, can do it over a game, have the understanding and, and the communication and the teamwork to, to go together. Um, if you say, from again, from a youth development perspective, you want to sit off and you want to not have the ball as much and counter-attack again, well, you get different returns from that. So you can you can use kind of the tactics and the playing styles and the ideas to get different returns to test and stretch players or to enhance some of their strengths. Um, one of my favourite ones is anytime you're working with kind of wide players and wingers from a youth development perspective, if you might highlight what they're, they're really good 1v1 on the ball, they're great with the crossing, they're great with the finishing, or they can cut inside and shoot, they can combine, all, all the kind of attacking stuff is great. Let's now bring the de- defending side up a little bit because if you want to make it to the top level, certainly, you have to have so many different tools and, and different ways of playing and you can't just... I, I don't think the role of that specialist will be around much longer if it even exists anymore because I think you have to have so many strings to your bow now all at a, 
at an elite level. Um, I always, the example I always use is Sadio Mane. I think he's, he's got so many different qualities that obviously in possession is, is unbelievable. He can finish off both feet. He's, you know, his movements really intelligent. Tactically, he's great. Athletically, he's outstanding. He's so quick. He can decelerate like that. It's unbelievable. The first time I went to watch Liverpool, like Klopp's Liverpool live, I think it was 20, 16 or 17, maybe. I went to watch him in the Champions League. And it was the first time I'd kind of seen his team and I was sat reasonably low down in the lower tier and I couldn't believe A, how quick he was, B, how he could change direction literally without slowing down. And then crucially, he could slow down when he needed to if he's like knocked it and ran, but then he needs to slow down to shoot or turn back or cross. Like, physically, he's unbelievable. He's got the technical and tactical qualities. You know, psychologically, he's, he's made it from from wherever he was from. Um, you know, in Africa to then graft and, and get yourself to Europe and fight your way for a career in football to then get to the Premier League and then to Liverpool and win Champions League, wing league. So mentally, clearly, he's mentally tough. He's really resilient and strong to go through the challenges that he will have faced on his journey. And it, in kind of look at the FA's poor corner model of the tech, tech, psych, social and physical, he's literally got so many good strengths in all areas. And then you think with the way Liverpool pressed defensively, He's one of the best pressers and defenders in the league because he's so good at cutting passing lanes, at using his body and using his arms to 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 lean on people, to push across, to cut passes out, to make it harder for those defenders trying to play out from the back. He's got so many good details. So anytime I work with a wide player, particularly always working on their in possession stuff and their end product, ultimately they've got to be able to defend and they've got to be able to do that side of the game. So from a tactical perspective, you think, well, actually. The wide plays, the, the defending side of the game isn't at the level that they're in possession is, or the defending maybe is letting them down a little bit. So we need to boost it. So we'll go, all right, then what tactics and what ideas can we do to put either that winger or both wingers pressing more and defending more? And it might be the wingers jump onto the centre backs and you tell your number nine to come out and cover the centre mid, and then your two wingers become your two highest pressers. So in the game, from a youth development perspective, they might be pressing and defending first and thus if they're doing it first, they're doing it most when you're pressing high. So you can use kind of tactical ideas to make the plays get stretched or improve stuff that they're good at. Um, if you want to work on kind of a fullbacks 1v1 defending, you might tell the winger ahead of him to not trap back and isolate that fullback and you know it might cost you the game on the Sunday, but from a youth development perspective, he will be tested and stretched because he's defending 1v1 more. And then that ultimately affects how you press. You might then put that winger starting much higher earlier. So that, and you leave a big gap that kind of at first team level, you'd, you'd be pulling your hair out on the sideline because there's no compactness. But from the youth development perspective, you go, right, and we'll leave that gap and we'll create it. It's a little bit unrealistic for our defensive structure, but ultimately we're going to test and stretch that fullback because he needs to get better 1v1. Or he's unbelievable defending 1v1. Let's make sure he stays unbelievable and keep that, that same strategy. So you can kind of use tactics and strategies to stretch and test individuals within the, the context of the 11 or enhance their strengths. Um, or you can use the same tactics and strategies if your objective is to win the game, which obviously towards the first team uh, it, it is. So that's where a lot of the time I'll steal some ideas and think, well, how can I put, I put my youth development hat on? How can I use that to develop players? Or if it's a case of what's the tactic and why are they doing it to win the game? What does that look like in terms of actually getting the result? 
And I'll go back to the start where you've got the, the Brendan Rogers masterclass of those little details. Well, those details are around him winning the game, not necessarily making Suarez a better player because he's already scored 28 goals at that point in the season. He's already, you know, top scorer for Liverpool. He doesn't need to get better. He just needs to win the game. Um, and that's why I think the kind of tactical and strategy ideas, a lot of people think it's, anytime you mention tactics or anything like that, they think, oh, it's just about winning the game. But you can actually use so many different ideas to develop players as well. And depending on what your, your overarching aims are, you'll change your tactics and strategies within that framework to, as I say, stretch players, or it might be to do what they're good at. Okay, so let's go, I guess, off two off the back of that. So the first one is how do you engage players individually, maybe in areas that aren't as natural to them? So if I put that into context, it's very easy to say to um, your centre-backs that, listen, we're going to play out loads today, so we're going to have loads of the ball and we're going to work on your passing range. What potentially isn't as fun is going, today, guys, we're going to sit in a low block, uh, we're going to practice that because we want to work on our counter-attacks, and your two centre-halves, you're going to get loads of opportunities to head and clear and block and whatnot. It's probably not as enjoyable. So from an individual perspective with that, the clips you're probably engaging them with is slightly different. You might have Man City for one, you might have Burnley for another. How do you motivate the players to engage with that so that they see it's another string to their bow rather than, you know, I could come away with a headache after today? Well, I guess I've got to be a bit careful in terms of like the FA's new heading guidance in terms of your heading training sessions. I'll I'll stick to the, uh, the PC answer, which is we don't train heading and I've never trained heading and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I guess what well, like with anything, uh, like the energy and, and session design that you bring as a coach is obviously massively important. So if it was stuff to do with kind of low block stuff, um, there's a game that again I nicked from a coach um, a few years ago called Blockers, where like two goals are really close and you do like a three or four team little round robin and winner stays on, but you get more points for block if a if a shot is going on target. Or you know it's going to need to be a save, but the defenders block it. They might slide and it hits the knee or whatever. You, you get more points than the goal. So then, kind of framing your session around not just doing that low block against a team with possession for like forty-five minutes because no like first team don't want to do that, eighteens don't want to do that, nines don't want to do that. Probably as a coach as well, you probably get fed up of that after a while. Um, so I think how you frame it in terms of you might do that for 10 minutes and then obviously crucially I think what's always good is to give them that carrot of the team that's been the low block team right you can now be the possession team and um, if you're working on the centre-backs for example like you said in, you go right this is your 10 minutes of your low block this is what's important for you but then you'll flip it when the, when it's not your 10 minutes then you can go out there now you're going to be on the team that dominates the ball and we'll flip and look at your passing um, and give them that carrot because ultimately that's probably one of the most toughest things to to work on in kind of youth development is telling players that right you're not going to touch the ball you're going to be moving next to your teammate you've got to be constantly talking and um you know every every player as soon as they come to a training session the first thing you do is they go to the bag of balls don't they they go to the bag of balls they want the balls out they want a ball at the feet um they, they don't come to training and they don't start practicing sliding across the pitch and talking to each other they go and get them the ball so it's again how you manage your time, how you can try and be clever about your activities. Like I said, doing a game like blockers where 
that is a, an element of the low block is once they do break through, it is about you putting your body on the line and blocking the goal. So making that a bit fun and, and being a bit lively and particularly if you're working with obviously like, you know, kind of mid to younger players, you, you probably wouldn't do the kind of low blocking as a training session anyway, but you might do your 1v1 defending sessions within the foundation phase that take elements from the low block, um, from the big picture to to like putting the mic- microscope on it. Um, and again, how, how much energy you bring to the session, players tend to tend to mirror what you bring. So if you can make it a bit more fun and, and lively, and like I say, games like that, blocker games are so good that it's lively, it's fun, there's goals involved, there's shooting, and I always frame it as if we're working on defending, we must be attack against attacking, so there must be somebody attacking. So at some point in the session, you'll get your attacking in. So that's your carrot that in order to practice defending, we need to be facing attackers, and in order to practice attacking, we need to face defenders. So if we say tonight, lads, we're doing an attacking session, ultimately some of you are going to have to be defenders. So, you know, there's the, the yin to the yang on that front. Um, and again, it's as players get older, they'll obviously understand the importance of that defending um, side of things. And sometimes the Premier League do a really interesting tournament where it's like the underload overload, where it's like 7v7, 7v5, 5v7, and that, that flip in that environment. And that's every time I've kind of been to one of those tournaments, kind of watching it, or I've taken my team myself, players never complain about being that five against seven. And would always say after all, you're doing a you're doing a low block there. That's that's what a low block is. There's five of you playing against seven. Rarely you're going to go and jump. You're just going to sit in as that five. And I think the way the Premier League do the rules are: if you score as the five, you get maybe double or triple goals. Um, I think I think true it was double. Um, so there, your environment creates that that low block. So how you can create games with conditions and rules to almost enforce the players to make a low block without actually telling them go and do the low block, go and work on your two centre-halters defending. You can be sneaky with your rules and your conditions and your constraints um, to, again, session design, try and force that. But again, the key element is not putting that team in for like 40 minutes as that low block because yeah, nobody wants that. And then shifting this to a game day, obviously working in the YDP phase, you, you get into a stage where then there will be games with consequences. So be it yeah. flood, Floodlit Cup or potentially your 16s, they might go and play FA Youth Cup and there is games that have consequences on them. And obviously you're trying to teach them to win, but yeah. I guess in, in a way that is the academy way. How do you frame that for them that actually tonight we're going to maybe go in a different direction with how we're going to play, but we think that it will give us a positive outcome. So again, using an example, if Burton United, uh, Burton Albion are playing Man City, they're probably not going to go and press. But now that might be their natural way to go and play in League One or League Two or wherever they're at. But they're probably thinking, if we go and press Edison, we're going to for a world of bother. So how do you frame that for players that maybe have a set way of playing, but the consensus is within the the coaching for te- uh, side at least that changing and adapting will, may provide them with more opportunities of a positive outcome for this particular fixture. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic the way the academy system is set up. That yeah, certainly in the YDP, like you say, you've got things, you've got um, like the Albert Feeling Cup. You know, you've got things like that that are like knockouts and. Um, the result matters or you've got your games program fixtures where 
where there's no consequence such as of the result. But you know, the way I would always work is I would never say at any level, even the grassroots, say, well, it's not that the result doesn't matter. It's just it's not the, the, the be all and end all because ultimately there's no point if you're not going to kind of count the score. Well, you don't have a, a framework for reference. So if you lose ten nil, it's it's not the end of the world. You're not going to lose your job because you lost ten nil. But ultimately, that ten nil tells you the, the level of, of players that, that you're at and where you're at. So you go, all right, then that's going to affect how we work and what we do. Um, so I think a way to kind of frame it in terms of the difference in the academy structure is that if you are going to make it to the first team level, like I say, you have to be adaptable. Managers change so quickly that sometimes different coaches come in that have different ideas and different playing styles and different philosophies. Or it could even well be that the same manager's been there for, I don't know, 10 years or eight years or whatever. And all of a sudden he's under pressure because the team that he's got right now isn't doing well. So he's got to change or the players that they've signed that year mean that say, if you've signed, say, if you've got a number nine who's fantastic and then the club signs another number nine who's fantastic. You don't really want to leave two at one out, so you play them both. So then you're a, a winger and you're going, right, well, I've been a winger in a 4 3 3 in the front three. Now I've got two nines, so now I'm playing, you know, as a, a part of a four in midfield. That's going to change my, my role in, in and out possession. So you've got to be flexible enough because ultimately at the first team level you won't get picked. If you can only do one job, and that's what we could refer back to about the, the role of the specialist, it is that role of a specialist dying and is it a consequence of that players need to do a lot more different things now? Um, and, and I guess it's also, you can kind of frame it to players that ultimately when you get to the top level, it is about, like I say, winning and, and three points and what the environment looks like at the end. You have to drip feed in the winning mentality side of the game. And if you're it, it kind of playing in a, in a game that you two one up and there's a consequence on the result in terms of if you lose, you're out. That might be that goal kick in the last five minutes might not be played short. It might be played long, which on any other kind of weekend in the academy system, in, in the games program, that's, that's the, the kind of normal games program. If there's five minutes to go and you two one up and you play out from the back and they, and they pinch it and they score, it's, it's part of the learning and development. Whereas the, the results changes that because just because of the emphasis on the result. And you, I think. It's right to drip feed that in at different ages. And I guess the balance of how you do it, that kind of equaliser, turning it up or down, has obviously different consequences. And if you do it more often, then you, you might lose that development side. But if you don't do it enough, I don't think you're almost doing the players a service for once they get to the end level, because you've got to think about the end level throughout the journey, but you've also got to be pragmatic and understanding of where they are on that journey at the same time. And like most things in life, it's it's a balance, isn't it? And so, and you might some age groups might even in the same club might you might change that balance because that age group might be might be at that age and stage they just might be better at the um, in the the tournament consequence environments. I remember working with the foundation phase teams that any time we went to a Premier League tournament, um, they were literally like not phased about anything. They were they were like so switched on and it was almost like they were like 10, 11 at the time. And it was almost like working with like 14, 15 year olds in terms of a mindset because they were so, and, and I don't know whether that's a product of kind of 
like the club at the time or whether that's the coaches or whether just a lot of them were lit just ahead of the years. When you chat to them casually as a 10, 11-year-old, they would talk to you like a 13, 14-year-old, just the language they used and the way they responded to you. And some of them would ask you how your day's been and he's like 10 years old. And, you know, that's not a, a normal 10-year-old thing to do. Um, but it kind of means that they're on track. Because if you think about, I always say with the, like the, the academy side and the youth development side that, if a first team player, generally, if they're going to have a career, they have to be in the first team environment kind of by the 20, really. Kind of, all the, a lot of the Champions League level players, they've kind of made the first team debut by 18. Like 70, 75% have made the debut by 18. So really, between 18 and 20, you have to, certainly on the mental side of things, you have to be like a 30-year-old man inside a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old. So when you're 14, 15, you then really have to be what a normal kind of 20-year-old would be. So then when you're um, kind of 10, 11, certainly mentally, you might have to be a little bit ahead of your years, like a 12, 13-year-old be, and like the nine-year-olds might have to be like a 10-year-old. And you might have to have that little bit of a jump mentally to be able to deal with the end demands um, and drip-feeding that consequence in can can help that. Um, and, I think, but I like think that's a, really interesting, what you're saying there around them kind of, maturity particularly around football happen to be that couple of years extra and yeah. we do talk around like the early professionalization but, but I guess that's a consequence of it because if you're specializing early it's because we yeah. know what the back end is um yeah I think that that's definitely a food for thought um we're really close to approaching a time that we'd allotted for this from, from my perspective so okay, I'm going to give you um two things I think the first thing which is something that I ask everyone which is Who's the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? And then once you've answered that one, I'll give you some thinking time because it's normally a hard one, is uh, you've mentioned a couple of times around the book that you've written. If you just want to explain to people about your book, um, just yeah. a quick summary of it and then where they can find it, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so best... I mean, the best one of the best coaches... Um... I would say I, I put it in the book at the start of my book was um, Dick Bate was that frightening level of just everything, like everything that you could ever think. What is a football coach? Like Dick Bate had that. And when I was at university, I had some really good lecturers, and like like I said at the start of the conversation, it was really insightful. Kind of that period of my life where I was just starting my coaching journey, all the experiences and knowledge and stuff that I was taught and and put through. And Dick Bate was the academy manager at Cardiff then. And literally like a two-minute chat or a 10-minute chat with him in the corridor was like, with all due respect to other people, it was like a like the equivalent of like 10 hours of lectures. It was like frighteningly good how, obviously his knowledge of the game was elite. It was the way he spoke and like the passion you could see, but just the way he conversed and the way he, put his ideas in your head it was literally like he'd just like taken his hat off and pulled his ideas out of his brain and literally just plonked it in your head and you'd go away with total and utter clarity kind of what he meant what his opinions were what his beliefs were what his ideas were and you almost left the conversation with a bit more clarity on well actually now I've said that I actually don't agree with my first opinion or it's confirmed what I did believe in the first place or it's something I've never ever thought about um he was just at another level and I never coached like against him um, it was only kind of I would chat with him casually 
like seeing him deliver lectures and sessions or like I say, seeing me deliver a game or a lecture, uh, a, a training session, whether, you know, I'm like just observing casually or it's more of a formal CPD thing. Um, he was just like to this day, he's like another level. Um, if we can get to anywhere near like him, like Jesus, like you've done, you've done good. Yeah, I and think then, he's he's in coaching folklore, so I think that's a that's a really good yeah. answer. Every everyone will know yeah. Dick Vague and the yeah. effect that he's had on a lot of people. So it's a really good answer. Yeah, and obviously, like he's no longer with us, unfortunately, and, and you know it's a shame because obviously he was just like, yeah, you know, god level of coaching. He was just frighteningly good. No, brilliant one, a brilliant thing to to, to finish on. And in terms of the book, just a quick summary of, of what it is why you wrote it and oh, wrote it should I say and um where people can find it. Yeah, so um so it's called Football in a Pandemic. It's um if you Google Football in a Pandemic it should come up. Generally like with most books, Amazon's kind of the the way to go. There's the Kindle version and then the the hard copy. Um it was due to be released kind of June, July time because it's mainly based on on last season. Obviously the idea of football in a pandemic, there's no fans, there's no crowd, there's you know, games were at like, different times of the day. The schedule was all over the place, wasn't it? Um, so the the it, and then due to various things in the world, mainly things like COVID, Brexit, like lorry drivers, Suez Canal, like anything you can think of, it's got pushed back. And then I'm you know I'm glad to say now finally it's it's out and available. Um, because originally I, I finished it in kind of May. I think it's like the end of May. So I finished it two or three weeks after the season finished to, to get it out there and then it doesn't end up getting released till October. So um if I knew I'd have had that much time, I'd have probably, you know, changed a few things and, and gone over it. But um yeah, glad it's out there. So yeah, football in a pandemic, it's got insights into tactics and strategies from loads of different teams. As I said, I didn't just want to pick the top kind of five or six teams. There's there's teams at all different kind of areas in the league, and then it looks at kind of every moment in the game. So in possession, out possession, the transitions, whether it's playing out, whether it's kind of creating the attack, whether it's finishing it, um, whether it's high pressing, mid block, low block, what teams try to do. Um, a lot of the times I keep it not generic, but I don't necessarily mention like individual players as stuff. It's more, it's more the themes throughout the season. So no matter what players were played, that tactic or that strategy or that idea was consistent across the season. So there's, so it's with a little bit more depth and then detail on that those ideas um so even if you're just a fan of so there's so the teams kind of covered liverpool brighton leeds man city aston villa west ham and tottenham everton so they're kind of the teams that are the main focus and then you've got every team has a mention at some point particularly on how they created goals so every team has a, a small look at least and then some are more in depth than others um and although i've split it say like the high pressing chapter for example although that's the focus it's not as isolated as the high pressing in terms of it will look at what the opposition did when they play out because obviously they don't want to isolate moments in the game too much there has to be a, a consequence with team a are high pressing like this team b are trying to do this in either consequence or in reaction to that press um and it was just a little project for me that, like I said, I do a lot of analysis and I do a lot of stuff that doesn't get released into the world that I keep for myself to make myself better. But again, part of it was to check and challenge my own knowledge and, and, and see other people's opinions on what I've seen and whether people agree or disagree, whether people have seen it as well. And I think, oh, yeah, I've seen that as well. And you can, you know, speak to people about it kind of informally. 
Um, and it's all kind of a little like bucket list thing. I've always wanted to release some kind of project that is just kind of myself and my own ideas. And with being the double lockdowns and being on furlough and not being on the grass so much, um, you find up end up having a lot more free time. And and I thought, you know what, let's put something together that was initially a bit of a, a coaching document slash a tactical document, and it kind of evolved. And the publishers like Pitch Publishing have been great, kind of pushing it out there and um, putting it all together and and it's kind of stemmed from there um so yeah check it out like i said just google football in a pandemic and um hopefully uh hopefully people enjoy enjoy reading that that tactical side of the game and, and it is great to see i said this to someone the other day it's great to see some of the stuff in the book that is still happening this year so like west ham are still counter-attacking really well and man city's pressing still great and Brighton are still creating loads of chances and some of the stuff has continued into this year um, and then the, the, the last part of the book obviously looks at Covid so how it's affected the scheduling the home versus away kind of bias that kind of totally flipped because there's no crowd and on the refereeing decisions um, and because it was such a unique season wasn't it last year you're probably never going to get a season like it hopefully ever again in terms of lockdowns and pandemics and no fans Um but because it was such a unique season, I thought, well, you know what, that could be a season that stands the test of time for a Premier League season where there's not many fans and it's all played behind closed doors and it's a very weird environment. Yeah, no, it sounds like a really interesting read and hopefully the, the listeners um, engage with it and um, I'll, I'll give it a read and see what my thoughts are. It'd be good to see what themes are, etc. But yeah, listen, really appreciate your time. Um, I'm sure we'll catch up again soon and uh, yeah, all the best. Yeah, thanks for your time, mate. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.